Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 36 of the Dayson Digest podcast. I'm Travis Jones, a liaison clinical pharmacist with Dayson, and in today's episode, I have Wes Johnson and Jenny Thomas, two PGY2 infectious disease residents from the University of Kentucky, here to discuss an article providing commentary on a new concept known as the escalation antibiogram. The link to the article discussed in this episode will be included in the episode notes, and for reference, we're recording this episode on Thursday, April 21st, 2022. And with that, I'll turn it over to Wes. Wes, why don't you give us a little bit of background information on this study? Sounds good, and thanks for that introduction, Travis, and having us today. I really appreciate it. So as Travis said, we'll be talking about the unique topic of an escalation antibiogram. As antimicrobial stewards, we are likely always thinking about ways to de-escalate therapy and select a more narrow agent for patients with infections. However, the article we're discussing today flips this thought process and delves into the topic of appropriate antibiotic escalation. When patients present to the hospital with sepsis, it is imperative that we start them on active antimicrobial therapy as soon as we possibly can. In these situations, we often take a stepwise approach of starting with broad antimicrobial therapy and then narrowing to pathogen-directed therapy as we discover the organism and its associated susceptibilities. A very useful tool to help guide stewardship programs in the selection of empiric antibiotics is a hospital antibiogram. Now, Jenny, how often do you find yourself referencing your institutional antibiogram? Yeah, I would say constantly. I feel like I definitely have a bookmarked on my laptop for easy access. I'm sure you do as well. And I honestly think it's one of the best institutional resources that we have, especially empirically. And of course, during that time period where we have our pathogen identified, but we're still waiting on our susceptibility results, I feel like is where I really use it the most. Um, So yeah, I would say when I'm on service, I reference it multiple times a week, if not more. Agreed. I know I frequently check our institution's antibiogram to really help with empiric therapy decisions and look at susceptibilities. Now, to elaborate a little bit more on antibiograms, these are a collection of antimicrobial susceptibility results of organisms isolated from clinical specimens within an institution. The two major functions of an antibiogram include the ability to monitor trends of antibiotic resistance over time and to inform providers on appropriate empiric antibiotics for patients that are presenting to the hospital with a presumed infection. Now, antibiograms can be exceptionally helpful in choosing the correct empiric therapy given susceptibility profiles at a specific institution, but what happens when a patient is not getting better with the initial empiric therapy? How do we appropriately expand empiric therapy to adequately cover any potential organisms our patient might be infected with. This is an important scenario to consider because a patient may have started therapy and continues to deteriorate prior to any culture information returning from the microbiology lab. Along those same lines, we can often find ourselves treating culture negative sepsis due to cultures remaining negative. And this is an important scenario to consider because one review from 2020 noted that over half of patients that present with sepsis never have a definitive pathogen identified. Alternatively, this might be a scenario where a patient does not have appropriate source control or there's a dysregulated post-immune response. 
However, clinicians still must parse through these scenarios and decide when it is appropriate to escalate antimicrobial therapy or maybe take further measures for source control. A common example of therapy escalation could include a patient being changed from piperacillin tazobactam to maybe meropenem. This example demonstrates a broadening of the spectrum of coverage, and many of us have had experience with this in our clinical practice. Jenny, have you made empiric escalations such as these based upon a patient's clinical status? Yeah, I definitely have seen escalations like this in clinical practice. And like you mentioned, I do think it's always a really difficult decision to make because a lot of times I do feel like it's a situation where we might see that a patient was febrile overnight while on piperacillin-tazobactam, the team escalates to meropenem. And sometimes it may be the case that the patient just doesn't have appropriate source control, or maybe they have some other reason to be febrile. So in those scenarios, you do sometimes question the appropriateness of empiric antibiotic escalation, but other times we may truly have patients who are decompensating despite what we would believe to be optimal empiric therapy. And in those situations, an escalation from something like piperacillin tazobactam or cefepime to meropenem or the addition of an aminoglycoside might truly be appropriate. So yes, I feel like I definitely see this in clinical practice. Yeah, those are all great points. And I, I really agree with you on, on some of those thoughts. And really, while this practice of escalation is nothing out of the ordinary, the logic behind these decisions can sometimes be flawed, and this is because the probability of antibiotic susceptibility is not independent across antibiotics, and there's typically overlap for resistance among different drugs. So to expand upon our example from earlier, how likely is an organism that is resistant to piperacillin tazobactam also going to be resistant to meropenem? And this is a question that most stewardship teams cannot answer without assessing the specific isolates that are resistant to piperacillin tazobactam. And previous studies have not addressed the specific topic of an escalation antibiogram, but there have been attempts to revamp the antibiogram and take a different approach to the traditional single agent for a single organism. One such study assessed clinical isolates that were associated with a specific syndrome, and in this case, the authors assessed those with abdominal biliary infections and those with urinary tract infections. The antimicrobial regimen, whether it was a single agent or a combination, was then reported as a percent of coverage for the specific disease state in lieu of just a single organism susceptibility. And this particular antibiogram informed providers on which antibiotics would likely give coverage for an abdominal biliary infection or for patients with a urinary tract infection. The other example of a novel take on the antibiogram is a combination antibiogram, specifically for Pseudomonas aeruginosa. One study assessed the susceptibilities of beta-lactams, fluoroquinolones, and aminoglycosides and then assess the percent of isolates that were susceptible to at least one of the two agents when a combination therapy approach was utilized. While double coverage is less common now, the idea is that providers would be able to give patients a combination regimen that would likely have at least one active agent. However, neither of these ideas gave insight on how to appropriately escalate therapy for patients that are failing to respond to empiric therapy 
and really leads us into our paper for today. And at this point, I'll hand it over Jenny, to Jenny to take over. All right, so we'll go ahead and get into our article for today titled Introducing the Escalation Antibiogram, a Simple Tool to Inform Changes in Empiric Antimicrobials in the Non-Responding Patient. This article was written by Daniel Tiedelbaum and colleagues and was accepted for publication in Clinical Infectious Diseases. In this study aimed to evaluate this concept of an escalation antibiogram as a potential tool for antibiotic escalation among patients who are not responding to initial empiric treatment. And this was a retrospective cohort study that was conducted at six academic and community hospitals located within the greater Toronto area over a four-year period, specifically looking at this concept of escalation antibiograms for gram-negative rod bloodstream infections. And the authors chose to look at gram-negative rod bacteremia specifically due to the high mortality rates and evidence supporting the impact of timely and appropriate treatment on patient outcomes. So in terms of methodology, susceptibility testing results were collected from these six hospitals that they included from 2017 to 2020. And they included the first blood culture yielding a gram-negative rod for each unique patient of the study. All of the participating hospitals followed a very similar microbiologic workflow, including the use of automated blood culture detection systems, followed by pathogen identification with matrix-assisted laser desorption ionization time of flight, which is better known as MALDI-TOF, and then finally susceptibility testing performed with VITEC-2 and then interpreted according to current CLSI breakpoints. And in this study, they specifically focused on 12 antimicrobials. So they looked at amikacin, ampicillin, cefazolin, ceftriaxone, ceftazidime, ciprofloxacin, ertapenem, gentamicin, mirapenem, piperacillin-tazobactam, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and tobramycin. And susceptibility test results for these agents were classified as either susceptible, intermediate, or resistant. And notably for the purposes of this study, all intermediate susceptibilities were actually considered to be resistant. And additionally, regardless of the susceptibility result, the authors classified ESBL-producing organisms as being resistant to piperacillin-tazobactam based upon the results of the Marino trial. And just as a reminder for our audience, the Marino trial showed higher mortality rates with piperacillin-tazobactam in comparison to carbapenems for the treatment of bacteremia caused by ESBL-producing organisms. So the authors generated a standard overall antibiogram based on the susceptibility of each organism to those 12 antibiotics of interest. They also created an antibiogram for each individual hospital in each individual study year. They then created the escalation antibiogram, which essentially looks at organisms resistant to one antibiotic and presents the likelihood of susceptibility to the other 11 agents. They did an inter-hospital analysis as well as an inter-year analysis of these escalation antibiograms just to make sure that there was consistency for each hospital and over time. And the authors then went ahead and subdivided organisms into four different pathogen groups to help understand the organisms that were susceptible to each agent within the escalation antibiogram. And these subgroups were, first off, E. coli and Klebsiella species, AMPC-producing beta-lactamases, Pseudomonas species, as well as other gram-negative rods. In terms of statistical analysis, this was primarily a descriptive analysis that was performed. 
Moving on to our results, in total, we had 6,577 gram-negative rod bacteremia isolates that were available from the six different hospital sites from 2017 to 2020. In looking at the overall antibiogram that was generated from these isolates, I want to go ahead and just read the susceptibility rates from lowest to highest, and these are rounded just for convenience sake. For the included organisms, ampicillin had the lowest susceptibility rate at about 30% followed by cefazolin and ceftriaxone at around 65%, then piperacil and tazobactam, ceftazidime, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and ciprofloxacin at around 75%, tobramycin, gentamicin, and ertapenem around 90%, and lastly, amikacin and miropenem had the highest susceptibility rates at 98%. And these rates were similar across the six hospitals and across the four years of the study. The authors did see some slight reductions in overall susceptibility rates of penicillins, cephalosporins, and fluoroquinolones between 2017 and 2020, and these were attributed to general increases in antibiotic resistance rates and were not substantial. So now moving on to the actual escalation antibiograms, they created 12 of these based upon resistance to each individual agent. So for example, in isolates resistant to ampicillin, what were the susceptibility rates for the other 11 antimicrobials? So I'll go ahead and describe some of the key findings here, but you can visualize these escalation antibiograms for each individual agent that they looked at in figure two of the article, which as Travis mentioned, we'll go ahead and link to within the podcast episode. So for ceftriaxone resistant organisms, the authors found that the probability of susceptibility to both ceftazidime and piperacillin-tazobactam was actually really low at 21% for both of these agents. And this is a really important finding because in clinical practice, escalation from ceftriaxone to piperacillin-tazobactam in patients who are not responding to ceftriaxone is a relatively common maneuver. And I know that I have definitely seen this in this specific escalation in clinical practice. Would you agree with that, Wes? What do you think of this finding here? I would agree. I've certainly seen this happen in clinical practice. And really, I often see this escalation due to the additional coverage of Pseudomonas aeruginosa with piperacillin and tazobactam. So I understand why this practice might actually happen. And I know you will be discussing this point shortly, but when you think about the mechanisms of resistance with other gram-negative bacteria, it makes sense why we may not see higher susceptibilities with a change from ceftriaxone to piperacillin tazobactam. Yeah, thanks, Wes. Those are great points, and I agree. I do feel like that's one of the most common reasons that teams will cite when they do this escalation is for that expanded pseudomonas coverage. So very interesting finding within this study here that really we found that these organisms that are ceftriaxone resistant, the susceptibility rates were much higher for other antibiotics that are not piperacillin tazobactam. Uh, so for example, tobramycin susceptibility rates were around 80%, as well as gentamicin. And then miropenem had susceptibility rates of 94%, and amikacin had susceptibility rates of 97%. So likely more appropriate to escalate to one of those antibiotics in somebody who's not responding to ceftriaxone. On the other hand, in isolates that were resistant to piperacillin tazobactam, the escalation antibiogram revealed that 95% of them were actually susceptible to miropenem. So this does support the decision to escalate to miropenem in patients who are not responding to piperacillin tazobactam. And I feel like this is also very common in clinical practice. We often see escalation from either piperacillin tazobactam or cefepime to miropenem. 
So it's really good to have some data to back up that practice. And obviously this particular data is specific to these six institutions that were studied here, but it would be really interesting for hospitals to look at their own data and see if this is true at their individual institutions as well. Overall, miropenem and amikacin demonstrated susceptibility rates that were greater than 95% for most of the escalation antibiograms, which obviously makes sense given the spectrum of these agents. These are obviously the most broad agents that were included here. But there were a few exceptions to this, one being ertapenem-resistant isolates that only had an 80% susceptibility rate to miropenem, and then also amikacin-resistant isolates had a 69% susceptibility rate for miropenem. In terms of amikacin, they found susceptibility rates of 79% in gentamicin-resistant isolates, 78% in fobromycin-resistant isolates, and 59% in miropenem-resistant isolates. It was also really interesting to me that in amikacin-resistant isolates, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole actually had the highest susceptibility rate at 86%. And in miropenem-resistant isolates, while amikacin was the most active agent, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole was the second most active. So even though we may not commonly be thinking about changing therapy to something like trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, this data does support that as an option for amikacin and miropenem-resistant isolates at these institutions. It's important to keep in mind that just because trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole was one of the most active agents for these miropenem and amikacin-resistant pathogens, I'm by no means implying that we should empirically put everybody on trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. We really need to think about what sorts of pathogens have the potential to be resistant to drugs like miropenem and amikacin to understand why trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole might be a good escalation option in these scenarios. So again, our escalation antibiograms were then stratified into these four subgroups, E. coli and Klebsiella species, AMP-C beta-lactamase producing organisms, Pseudomonas species, and other gram-negative rods. And these groups really help to identify what groups of resistant organisms are covered by each potential escalation. And I'm not going to go through resistance to each individual drug, but I do think that some of these are important to highlight, even if they may be intuitive. So for cefazolin and ceftriaxone-resistant organisms, these were a mix of E. coli and Klebsiella species, AMPC-producing organisms, Pseudomonas species, as well as other gram-negative rods. The major groups of organisms that were resistant to piperacil and casobactam and ceftazidime were AMPC-producing organisms, as well as E. coli and Klebsiella species. And then the majority of isolates that were resistant to amikacin were either Salmonella species or Stenotrophomonas multophilia. Miropenem-resistant organisms were primarily Pseudomonas species, as well as Stenotrophomonas multophilia again. In looking at this data, we can see why trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole was one of the most active agents for amikacin and miropenem-resistant organisms, given that stenotrophomonas multophilia represented a large portion of these. And overall, these escalation antibiograms were consistent across the six hospital sites and across the four study years. And these escalation antibiograms do provide really helpful data. So for these institutions, the escalation antibiograms demonstrated this lack of utility in escalating patients from ceftriaxone to piperacil and tazobactam in patients not responding to ceftriaxone. And as Wes mentioned, this may relate to the fact that while this escalation maneuver does expand coverage against Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is generally the given rationale for this escalation, resistance mechanisms like ESBLs and AMPC 
often confer cross-resistance between ceftriaxone and piperacillin and casobactam. Additionally, this data supports the escalation from piperacillin and casobactam to meropenem in patients not responding to piperacillin and casobactam, which again makes sense since we know meropenem does provide expanded activity against organisms with ESBL or AMC production. And personally, I think that even more important than the specific data with these escalation antibiograms is the fact that they were relatively easy to create and are reproducible at other institutions who have access to accurate data at this level. And these don't have to be exclusive to gram-negative bacteremia like this study was. These escalation antibiograms could be created for gram-positive bacteremia, fungemia, and really any other source of infection. I do want to highlight one limitation of escalation antibiograms, which is that these are derived from culture-positive infections only. So this information does have to be taken with a grain of salt when we're thinking about things like culture-negative sepsis. The authors also acknowledge that their findings are from six hospitals within one geographic region, so their findings may not be generalizable to other institutions. It's also critical to keep in mind that not responding to an empiric antibiotic does not necessarily mean that this is driven by resistance to that antibiotic. So in clinical practice, lack of response could also be driven by lack of source control or a dysregulated host immune response. And neither of those problems are gonna be solved by escalating our antibiotic therapy. So before we wrap up our discussion today, we wanted to talk just a little bit about how an escalation antibiogram would be used in clinical practice. I already mentioned that as clinicians, we need to differentiate between antibiotic failure versus lack of source control or lack of an immune response prior to using something like an escalation antibiogram. So I do think that's a really key scenario where an escalation antibiogram is not applicable. But in terms of using something like this, Wes, how would you go about applying this concept? Yeah, I think that's a great point to keep in mind. We don't want to go around escalating therapy for everyone when really the problem is source control. Going off of that, I think another key point is that the escalation antibiogram would be meant for use only in patients not responding to their initial empiric antibiotics. It wouldn't be appropriate to look at an escalation antibiogram and decide to start everyone on meropenem and amikacin empirically because they have the highest susceptibility rates in the escalation antibiogram. Empiric therapy should still be guided based on the site of infection, most likely pathogens, institution-specific susceptibilities based on local antibiograms, and then finally, patient-specific risk factors. The role of the escalation antibiogram is really to help clinicians when they have a patient with appropriate source control and a functioning immune system, but aren't responding to first-line antibiotics and may truly have a resistant pathogen. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with that. And obviously, these escalation antibiograms don't replace our actual susceptibility results once they're obtained, since those are really what we should be using to guide therapy at that point. These are more so to help clinicians with decompensating patients until that information is available to us. So ultimately, I feel like use of an escalation antibiogram can help to inform local antimicrobial escalation pathways by first off identifying agents that have a high probability of coverage for organisms that are resistant to an initial empiric antibiotic. Additionally, I think these can help us identify which escalation maneuvers should be avoided due to lack of expanded activity. So I do think that this study has a lot of practical applicability 
And I now want to turn it over to Wes to see how he thinks this study can help impact our community hospitals. And really, I think this study provides several key points for community hospitals. The study demonstrates that institutions should assess their own practice of empirically changing patients from ceftriaxone to piperacillin tazobactam, because this is providing minimal expanded coverage for resistance mechanisms such as AMPC or ESBLs. With this information in mind, community hospitals could provide education to their providers to avoid this escalation pattern and should likely use meropenem or an aminoglycoside. Additionally, this study demonstrates community hospitals could work with their microbiology departments to specifically assess gram-negative isolates that are resistant to certain antibiotics, such as ceftriaxone, piperacillin-tazobactam, or other non-beta-lactam classes. Institutions could then take steps to create an escalation antibiogram that would allow providers to make informed decisions when escalating therapy for patients that are deteriorating while on their initial empiric therapies. More specifically, this practice could be applied on a smaller scale by assessing the alternate susceptibilities for one or two high-yield empiric antibiotics, such as ceftriaxone, cefepime, or maybe piperacillin-tazobactam. And this could be especially useful for institutions that may not have the newest rapid diagnostic systems and therefore may have to wait longer intervals before confirming susceptibilities. Finally, institutions could expand this practice beyond patients with gram-negative bacteremia and could create an escalation antibiogram for potentially high-yield gram-positive antimicrobials, as Jenny mentioned earlier. This would then allow providers to make informed decisions on empiric escalations if the patient is thought to have a gram-positive organism causing their clinical deterioration. Overall, this is a great study that any institutional antimicrobial stewardship program should read and discuss. At the very least, this article is helpful for thinking about your institutional's antimicrobial escalation practices and how they could be refined to improve patient care. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Travis to close us out. Thanks, Jenny and Wes, so much for, for providing that really helpful commentary on how an escalation antibiogram could really be practically applied and created at some of our Dason community hospitals. Uh, we've enjoyed having you on rotation this month and we appreciate you taking the time to help us with episodes 35 and 36 of the Dason Digest podcast. For our listeners, I wanted to share that our next episode will be published on Friday, May 6th of 2022, two weeks away. And until next time, take care. Thank you.